persecution. And so we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. As we continue our study, there are printed outlines attached to the bulletin. If you got one uh, when you came in, if you didn't, feel free to grab one now. And there are printed messages. They're yellow, and I see some back over here. I think there's some here, some out there. If you need one, those are uh, the text of the message in printed form, and all of those are on the church website for the last almost 25 years now, so you can access them there. Our text is Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, where Paul says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief <clears throat> to those or to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. I think the doctrine of the eternal conscious punishment of unbelievers is probably one of the most difficult teachings in the Bible for us to comprehend and to embrace. The thought of those we know and love, and we all have loved ones who are unbelieving, the thought of them as well as other people around the world who don't know Christ, suffering eternally seems at first thought out of character with a loving God. And then you think about all the millions down through church history who have never even heard the name of Jesus. What about them? Most of them were relatively decent people. I'm sure they loved their children. They loved their families. They were decent toward their neighbors. And we wrestle with, well, how can God consign such people to eternal punishment? It seems, again, at first thought, like, well, the punishment exceeds the crime. The difficulty of that doctrine has caused some evangelicals, notably the late John Stott, who was a respected Anglican clergyman. I, in fact, read his commentary on Thessalonians. Uh, he either rejected or at least modified this, this doctrine. Last fall, I listened to a message online from a pastor of a popular evangelical church here in Flagstaff in which he said that he does not believe that unbelievers will suffer uh, eternally in hell. Um, 
Several years ago, we had a man at this church, came here for a while, and uh, after he left, he would stand out on the sidewalk, maybe some of you encountered him, handing out papers that argued that eventually God would save everyone. And uh, I would argue with that man, and I told him, I wish that were true, because I have a daughter who lives in Asia, and she and her family are seeking to reach the people over there, and if they're all going to be saved eventually, then bring her home. I miss her, and uh, let's not spend money on missionaries. I mean, why waste money sending out missionaries if, after all, everyone will be saved? Uh, then there was a well-known pastor at the time, pastor of a 10,000-member church up in Michigan named Rob Bell, and he wrote a book in 2011 called Love Wins, in which he argued uh, against the traditional understanding of hell, and also he challenged the doctrine of Christ's substitutionary atonement. Those who reject the doctrine of eternal punishment but still want to hold on to saying, I believe in the Bible, basically have two options. One is to say that the wicked will suffer for a while and then God will annihilate them. They will cease to be. Their souls will no longer exist. Um, that's also the view of the Seventh-day Adventist church, by the way. Uh, another tack is the one that the man who was handing out the literature out front was taking, and that is based on Colossians 1.20 and some other verses. That verse says that, if it, that God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ, they argue again that eventually all people will be saved. Some go so far as to say even Satan and the demons will be saved eventually. That view is, is called universalism. I line up with Jonathan Edwards who preached a sermon. You can read it online. It'll take you an hour or two. And I can't imagine how long it took him to preach it, but... Uh, it's called The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. And he argues basically that we struggle with the doctrine of eternal punishment to the degree that we do not understand or um, submit to the infinite holiness of God as revealed in Scripture. And because God is infinitely holy, all sin against him is infinitely heinous and deserving then of infinite punishment. And he argues that when we understand that God is absolutely holy and just, that then he must punish all sin. And of course, we all have repeatedly and defiantly sinned against God and therefore are deserving of his infinite judgment. Now, Paul elaborates on the judgment of the wicked in our text to bring comfort to the Thessalonians. They were new believers, and they were suffering a lot of persecution. And like all of us, probably wondering, where is this God we trusted in? Why isn't he delivering us? What, what's going on? Why are we suffering as we are? 
And Paul appeals to the sense of justice that we all feel and says, well, those who persecute or wrong the innocent, the believers, someday should pay for their crimes because God would not be God if he were not just. If they, there were a judge in our city who was having murderers and rapists come before him and said, hey, nah, try to do better. Don't worry about it. We forgive you. We would all say, wait a minute, that is unjust. That is not right. And God would not be just. He would not be God if he did not punish sin. Thankfully, the Bible tells us that God has provided an acceptable substitute. And so he can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because Jesus died in the place of all sinners who will come to him and trust in him. He is the Lamb of God, summing up and superseding all of the Old Testament sacrifices that we read about. Jesus fulfilled them all. And so we have an out, we have a rescuer, a savior, that's what that word means. He delivers us from the wrath to come if we trust him, but everyone else will be punished for their sins. And so Paul in our text shows there are two and only two outcomes when the Lord Jesus returns. He says that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, he's going to deal out eternal punishment to unbelievers but he's going to share his eternal glory with his saints. Now, before we work through the text, I need to explain a problem. And I hope all of you were here last fall when I spoke on God's prophetic plan, because if you weren't and you're not up on some of these terms, I'm probably going to lose you. Um, You can access that message later and try to fit it all together. But the problem is this. If you hold to a premillennial view of the future, as I do, that is that Christ will return and set up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years uh, before the end of all things, uh, then <clears throat> Paul says here that when he comes back, he's going to deal out retribution and judge unbelievers. And so the problem is, Who then, other than glorified saints, is going to enter the millennium? Because the saints will enter the millennium in their glorified bodies. When he returns, we'll get our resurrection bodies. Uh, But it sounds like everyone else will be judged. And the problem is, there are texts that make it pretty clear that in the millennium, uh, there will be people in natural bodies. Uh, They will die. And at the end of the millennium, they will stage a rebellion led by, you know, the uh, devil himself and rebel before the final judgment. And so the question is, all right, if believers are all in their resurrection bodies, everyone else is judged, who's going to be in the millennium? Now, our text is not a problem for those who hold to the amillennial view of the future. Um, The amillennialists believe that there's not going to be a future kingdom of God on earth, of Christ, that his kingdom is now in heaven where he reigns. It's a spiritual kingdom. And that when he returns, he's going to judge the earth 
and usher in the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. And so um, this text is fits into that viewpoint, which you say, well, why then don't you accept that viewpoint? Well, I don't because I think that viewpoint runs into a lot of other problems with other texts. And you have to kind of pick which one has the least problems, in my opinion. And <clears throat> I don't have time to go into all the pros and cons of amillennialism and premillennialism, but I did explain some of that in that previous message, and you can access it, or if you have a copy of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, I list some pages in the notes where he succinctly weighs the pros and cons of each view. I recognize there are many godly scholars who are smarter than I am who do endorse amillennialism, so I'm not condemning that view or those people, but I think premillennialism has fewer problems and makes more sense of more scriptures, so that's where I'm at. But then the question is, okay, now who populates the millennium? Um, Those who hold to, and I'm going to lose you here if you weren't in on that earlier message, those who hold to the premillennial pre-tribulation rapture view, okay, this is one camp of premillennialists, they argue that the Jews who are converted during the tribulation will enter the millennium in their um, natural bodies. They will not get a resurrection body when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation, and they will have children, and some of those children will not believe, and they will be the ones who participate in the final end-time rebellion against Christ. I, As I explained in that other message, I used to hold to that view. It's what I was taught in seminary. Um, but as I have studied it over the years, I cannot find in Scripture any support for two second comings of Christ, one for the saints before the, rap- or before the tribulation at the rapture and another one at the end of the tribulation. I only see one coming, and so I am what is termed a historic premillennialist. It was the view of the church in the first three centuries. Um, And uh, Wayne Grudem, who I mentioned, he holds to that historic premillennial view. And he says that when Christ comes back, he will defeat all of his enemies, but it doesn't say he necessarily will annihilate all of them at that point. Some will submit grudgingly to him in his kingdom, and it is they or their children who will eventually uh, join the rebellion at the end of the millennium. Now, I'm going to offer you a speculation. I have not read this in any commentary. Uh, I have not heard it from anyone else, so I'm way out on a limb, okay? And uh, you, you please take it with that kind of tentativeness. But my speculation is that perhaps when he comes back, Christ is going to judge and consign to hell all who have heard the gospel and deliberately rejected the gospel, and that young children and people in unreached people groups who have not heard the gospel will go into the millennium where they will hear the gospel during that time, And some will receive it, some will not. They would be the ones 
who eventually joined Satan's final rebellion. Now again, I don't have any verse that supports that. That is simply a maybe, um, something to think about, but um, that's, that's my suggestion. Now, I want to turn to our text and show three truths that we can affirm. The first one, very clearly, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in a mighty display of power and glory. Paul often refers to what he calls the coming of the Lord, and in the Greek text, he uses the word parousia. Maybe you've heard that term. It means the presence. He will be present. Uh, Sometimes he refers to the Lord's appearing, and he uses another Greek word there called epiphania. We get the word epiphany from that, and some of the liturgical churches celebrate epiphany. Here, Paul uses a different word. It's the Greek word apocalypto, which the book of Revelation in Greek is called the apocalypse. It means the revelation. Christ will be revealed. Right now, he is hidden in heaven. We can't see him. He's with us presently in spirit, but uh, he is in heaven. The world cannot see him, but the day is coming when he will be revealed on the clouds of glory. Every eye will see him. His coming will be bodily. His coming will be visible, and it will be glorious. Paul here says that he will be accompanied by his mighty angels in flaming fire, which is a symbol of judgment in the Bible. Uh, Many commentators point out that the language Paul uses here is often used in the Old Testament of theophanies. A theophany is an Old Testament bodily appearance of the Lord. Sometimes he showed up in bodily form. He did at Abraham's tent along with two angels when they were on their way to destroy Sodom. And Abraham was talking to the Lord in some bodily form. And so, of course, because that language is used here of Jesus, it is a proof of his deity. Now, when Jesus appears in power and glory... It says in the Bible that unbelievers are going to cry out to the mountains and rocks to fall on them and protect them from the wrath of the Lamb. Believers are going to marvel. Unbelievers are going to be terrified at that moment. Uh, But my point here simply is this. Unless Jesus and the apostles were either lying or just deluded, he is coming. It is a certain fact that he is coming. Peter says in 2 Peter that mockers will say, Oh, where's the promise of his coming? Everything's going on just as it has for all these years. Yeah. And they will be terrified at that moment when Christ comes in clouds of glory. And so he is coming. That's one thing that's very clear. A second clear truth here is that when Jesus then is revealed from heaven... He's going to deal out eternal punishment to unbelievers. In verse 6, Paul says, For it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And then in verses 8 and 9, he adds that 
This will involve dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And as I said, my speculation is that this punishment at this time might only apply to those who have heard and then deliberately rejected the gospel, but they will not have another opportunity to believe when Christ comes. Three things here to note under this heading. First of all, God's judgment on unbelievers is absolutely righteous. It is righteous. Psalm 98 verse 9 exalts, The Lord is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Uh, Paul in 2 Timothy 4 refers to the Lord as the righteous judge. And in Revelation 19, 1 and 2, we read, John hears the voice of a great multitude in heaven, and they are saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Or as Abraham asked when the Lord appeared to him there in that section in before he went to judge uh, Sodom, Abraham asked rhetorically, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? God's judgment is just or righteous. One reason it's righteous is there is not a person who has ever lived who can hide a single deed or word or thought from the all-knowing God. He knows everything we've ever thought, everything we've ever done, everything we've ever said. And so there will be no escape and there will be no mercy for unbelievers on that day. There will only be justice. Paul says in Romans 2, 6, that God will render to each person according to his deeds. And nobody can hire a super attorney and get off before the bench of the Almighty God who knows every thought. Paul says in Romans 3.19, every mouth will be stopped. So nobody can bring a case and say, ah, but, no. It's all exposed. God knows everything, and he will deal justly. Now, Jesus taught there will be degrees of punishment in hell, and it'll be proportionate to a person's sins and to the light that person rejected. There is this remarkable passage in Matthew 11. I'm not going to read it for you now. hope you're somewhat familiar with it. Every time I read it, I just, my jaw drops and I think, wow. Jesus says there that it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for the cities around him, including Capernaum, who have seen his miracles and rejected him. And then he reveals that God not only knows what everyone does or did in the past, but here's the mind blower. 
God also knows what everyone would have done had they received more light, more revelation. Now, does that stagger your brain or what? In other words, God knows every contingency. And, and God tells, or Jesus tells them, that if the miracles had been done in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah that were done in Capernaum, they would have repented. But they didn't get the miracles and they didn't repent. And remember in the story in Genesis 18 and 19, the angels who went to rescue Lot out of Sodom were powerful. They could have done some impressive miracles. They did one. They struck blind all the men of Sodom who tried to rape them. And they could have done other miracles. And Jesus said, if they had done that, Sodom would have repented. But God saw fit not to give them that light. And they didn't repent. And they will be judged. And none of them can bring a case against God and say, that's not fair. You know, if you'd only given us more light, we would have repented. And God will say, I know, but you didn't repent. And you're guilty. It's really an amazing, amazing passage. But it shows God doesn't owe mercy to anyone because all have sinned. And all are guilty. And if he chooses to show mercy to us, it's mercy. It's undeserved. But every sinner who is not covered by Jesus' blood and righteousness is going to be judged by the righteous judge of all the earth. A second truth here in this text is that unbelievers do not know God and they do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That's in verse 8. And some scholars think those two phrases refer to two peoples, that those who do not know God refers to the Gentiles, those who do not obey the gospel to the Jews. But I agree with the majority of scholars who say that is too subtle of a distinction to draw out of the text. Rather, what Paul is doing is using synonymous parallelism. It's a, a form of poetry or speech where you say the same thing twice for emphasis, but you vary it just slightly with a different nuance. Those who do not know God does not refer to people who innocently are ignorant of God. It refers to people who know God and, as Paul puts it in Romans 1, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they love their sin and they hear about God or think about God and they, they just slam the door on that. I don't want to hear about it because they like going on in their sin. And Paul goes on in that Romans 1 passage and says, God has revealed clearly his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature through his creation. But then he says this in Romans 1.21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And so the people who do not know God are culpable. They they do not know God because of the hardness of their hearts. They don't want to know God because they don't want their sin exposed and they are guilty. And because they love their sin, such willfully ignorant people, Paul adds, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In 
Mark 1.15, it says that when Jesus began his ministry, he preached, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, that wasn't a helpful hint for happy living. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. Repent and believe the gospel. And if people don't repent and believe the gospel, they're disobeying the gospel. Um, In Acts 17, Paul is on Mars Hill there talking to the Athenian philosophers. And he says this, Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So to repent and believe the gospel is to obey the gospel. That's the point. And because it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus, as Paul says here, Believing the gospel is obeying the Lord, who is the rightful Lord of all. In John 3.36, it equates believing with obedience or disobedience, contrasting them. It says this, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. And then, in contrast, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Paul in Romans a couple of times refers to what he calls the obedience of faith. And uh, the, the point I'm making is simply this. If someone says, oh, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, but they're just living for themselves, living in sin, blowing off obedience, there's good reason to challenge that person and say, I don't think you really understand what belief in Jesus means. Belief in Jesus means submitting to his lordship. He is Savior and Lord. And uh, if you're living in disobedience to Jesus, you may well not know him and face his judgment when he comes. A third thing under this point is then that unbelievers, and this is the hard point, unbelievers will suffer terrifying, irreversible, eternal punishment uh, and affliction and punishment when Jesus is revealed. In verse 6, God will repay them with affliction. Verse 8, he's going to deal out retribution to them. And in verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now those who try to argue that the wicked will suffer for a while and then be annihilated camp on a word like destruction and say, see, they're going to be eternally annihilated. Uh, But the word does not mean that they're going to cease to exist because, as Paul says, the penalty is that they're going to be away from the presence of of the Lord and the glory of his power and the glory of heaven will be we will see the Lord in his glory if these people are away from it but then they are annihilated that would not be a penalty they just cease to exist and and so the word means 
total ruin. They will be in the ruin of not being able to enjoy the presence and the glory of the Lord throughout eternity. Paul's language here um, comes from several texts in Isaiah. In Isaiah 66.15, the prophet says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. And that flames of fire is in our text in verse 7. And several of the other words from that Isaiah prophecy are in our text. Uh, Greg Beale in his commentary says, This is noteworthy, the connection there, because only nine verses later in Isaiah comes the well-known description of those who have been judged. Isaiah says, Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, Isaiah 66, 24. And then Beale says, a clear reference to an unending punishment of conscious beings. Also, the phrase in verse 9 where Paul says, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power comes from the Septuagint of Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10, 19, and 21. Isaiah repeats it three times. And each time Isaiah adds the description from the terror of the Lord and the majesty of his power. Here's Isaiah 2.19 in our um, English text. It says, men will go into the caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. And in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 17, John picks up on that language to portray the terror of Christ's return. He says, Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us! And hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For great, the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Now all that kind of language tells us that contrary to the world's sometimes cartoons or pictures of hell, hell is not going to be a, a wonderful party for pagans for all eternity. It's it's described everywhere in horrible terms. And this is significant. No one spoke more in the Bible about hell than Jesus. You know, Jesus taught some hard things. And I know as a young Christian, I had to decide, am I going to submit to what Jesus said or not? If I'm going to be a Christian, I have to submit to what he said. He said some hard things about predestination. I wrestled with that as a young believer. Finally thought, okay. He says some hard things about hell. Remember in Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Jesus says that the rich man in hell calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. Or as we read a moment ago in Isaiah 66, 24, and 
Jesus picks up on that. It refers to hell as the place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Sometimes people will ask, well, do you believe the fire of hell is literal? And my answer is, I don't know, but I don't want to find out. It's pretty horrible. Maybe that's a figure of speech, but I think Jesus used language that is frightening to say, you don't want to go there. And he repeatedly referred to the final state of unbelievers as a place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've heard people argue, well, you know, hey, how can it be fire and darkness? And my answer is, have you ever been in a burning building? You can't see. It's filled with smoke. And you cannot see. In the Coast Guard, we had to train for firefighting. And they lit this fire and sent us in there and... You know, everybody's yelling to everybody else, where are you, man? You know, we can't see. So it can be a place of outer darkness and a place of flame as well, if that's literal, but it's just scary language. Now, some, the pastor here in town that I listened to his message, try to argue, well, eternal doesn't in the Bible always mean forever and ever and ever. Sometimes it just means a long time. Uh, I'm sorry, but that doesn't cut it because, for example, in Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus refers to the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels aren't going to be annihilated. They're going to suffer forever and ever. And then you get down to verse 46, and Jesus says, These, the wicked, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And if he used the word eternal differently in those two ver- in that same verse, the burden of proof is on the person who says, well, I don't mean the same thing. Seems to me if eternal life is forever and ever, and it is, eternal punishment is forever as well. And my point here is simply, we shouldn't use softer language than our Savior used. He knew the Father in heaven, He knew his plan for eternity. He knew that he had prepared hell for those who do not believe and who do not obey the gospel. And and so that's really bad news for those who reject Christ. But there is good news here to end on in our text, and that is that when Jesus is revealed from heaven, he's going to share his eternal glory with his saints. In verse 7, Paul says there will be relief from the affliction of persecution. Have any of you ever seen the headache remedy Anison? And wondered, where'd they get a name like Anison? It's a transliteration of the Greek word relief. The Greek word is Anison. There will be relief. Um, And then in verse 10, when he comes to be glorified, in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Again, Paul is using language from Isaiah. On that day is used twice in Isaiah, verse, chapter 2, verse 11, and verse 17. It's the same chapter that he quotes in verse 9. Uh, and then the Lord's being glorified in his saints comes from Psalm 89 and verse 7, And in that text, the holy ones probably refers to the angels. But in the New Testament, the 
believers are called saints, holy ones. And it doesn't just refer to super believers who are extraordinary. If you believe in Christ, you are set apart unto God in Christ. That's what saint means, set apart ones, holy ones. And uh, in Colossians 3, 4, Paul says this, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We'll be there in glory with Christ. Or Ephesians 3.21, Paul prays to him, be the glory. And then, surprisingly, he adds, in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever, amen. And he says here, we will marvel at the glory of Christ, but then I think we'll marvel, we share it. We'll be the bride of Christ. And you know, every bride gets ready for her big day. She adorns herself in a glorious fashion for that grand entrance. And and that's the picture. We will be sharing the glory of Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb and then throughout all eternity. Now maybe you're saying, wow, this is all kind of hard, but what's the practical implication of this? Well, many things could be said. Let me mention two. One is... We need to believe in the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of hell to burden our hearts with compassion for lost people. Lost people are lost. And they're heading for horrible, horrible eternal future. Remember in Romans 9, Paul makes a staggering statement. I honestly could not say what Paul said there. I should say it, but I can't. But he said... My heart is so burdened for my people, the Jews, who don't know Jesus, that I'd be willing to give up my salvation if they would be saved. Wow. I don't think so. (laughs) I want my salvation, thank you. But Paul said that. And it, it just shows again the compassion that we should have. And it shows this. The gospel is not primarily a message of, is your life a little bit rough and you got some problems? Try Jesus. He'll help you with your problems. Now, that's true. He will. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not, you know, is your marriage going through a rough patch? Try Jesus. He'll help your marriage. Again, true, but that's not the gospel. Or, you know, whatever your problem is, Jesus will solve your problem. All right? That's not the gospel. The gospel is this. You're under the wrath of a holy and just God. And he made a provision in Christ, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of any person. And the good news is you don't have to earn it. And you don't have to labor and pile up merits to get it. All you have to do is receive it by faith. By faith. You see, whether a person is judged to suffer eternal destruction or whether they are welcomed into the eternal glory of Christ depends on a key word that we see twice in verse 10. It's the word believed. And Paul repeats it to assure these new believers, you guys believed our testimony about Jesus. And the Bible is clear that all who believe the apostolic witness about Christ that we have in our New Testament, 
that Jesus died for sinners, that he was raised from the dead, that he's coming back again in power and glory, and that all who receive him by faith have eternal life, those people will be saved. John 3.16, familiar verse, favorite verse for many of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Notice that whoever believes, there it is, whoever believes in him shall not perish. That's the same idea as destruction, but have eternal life, eternal life in Christ through faith. And as we've seen, believing in Jesus isn't just sitting here saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I was raised in the church. I believe all that stuff and going out and living for yourself and living in sin. No, when you believe in Jesus, you turn from sin to him and you desire to live a holy life and to obey him. And he becomes not only your savior, but your Lord as well. So the crucial question I want to leave with you this morning is this. Have you personally believed in Jesus Christ as the only rescue you have from eternal destruction. You've fled to the cross. You've clung to Christ. He's your only hope that when he comes back with his angels in flaming fire and a display of glory, you will marvel. You won't be judged. You'll share his glory. You won't go to eternal destruction. And so, if you haven't believed, I hope if you don't do so today, you go home and you're terrified by what I've shared with you. You should be. But if you have believed, you have eternal comfort in Christ. I mean, it's really a no-brainer. Remember what Paul told the Philippian jailer? Believe in the Lord Jesus And you will be saved. Let's pray.